Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. The silent assassin Matt Costa here as well, as well as science advisor Matt Moniz, the star of last Monday's Boston Globe. For those of you who got a chance to see it, a whole story about the old hunting grounds, all about the Bridgewater Triangle and more specifically some of the hauntings associated with the Freetown State Forest. Now, we talked a little bit about it last week, Matt, but have you heard a lot of response uh, about that story actually yeah, i have and uh what what is everybody's general consensus is it you know this is really interesting i'd like to learn more or is it kind of more oh you know i heard those stories i don't really believe that kind of stuff actually a lot of the stuff i've been getting has been people wanting to contribute their own stories of what they remember from their encounters of the uh bridgewater triangle and did you tell them they can call into this show and let us know Yes, I did. Excellent. And, of course, if you would like to join in the discussion about the paranormal at any time, just give us a buzz, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, you can also usually get us on the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com, but it looks like we're having some uh, Internet troubles tonight. Is that the case, uh, Silent Assassin, Matt Costa? Yes. Yes. There's no no wizardry, technical wizardry you can do once you hit that uh you know, must have a password to log yes. in screen. Not with another password. I'm not that good. No, well, I'm, I've seen you hack some stuff before. I'm sure you could figure it out if given enough time, but we want to be respectful to the WBSM and the spooky studio here. So, well, we have a action-packed show lined up for you in addition to talking a little bit more about the Bridgewater Triangle and some interesting things that we have coming up. We will be joined later on in the program by Stan Gordon, a researcher uh, mostly in the UFO field, but definitely you know, taking takes reports of all things strange and unusual down in Pennsylvania. We are going to talk to him about the Kecksburg UFO incident in particular, as well as some interesting things about Bigfoot and uh, how it relates to UFOs. So it should be, uh, you know, people seem to respond well when we focus on one case and we, we present the entire story because if you're interested in UFOs, you've come across the name Kecksburg before. You've come across Stan Gordon's work before. You've seen him on, you know, the History Channel, the Sci-Fi Channel, some of these other uh, documentaries that are out there. But you're not sure all of the facts of the case. It's just you kind of hear a little bit in passing. So when we have a show like tonight where we can really get into the bones of it and, you know, sometimes we, we break stuff that you might not have heard elsewhere. Sometimes we bring up facts that people tend to bury. So it always works out pretty well. It always gets me more intrigued anyway. Stan's an incredible researcher. He has a mountain of material that he hasn't even brought out to the public yet. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, I was watching the DVD, his DVD that he put out about Kecksburg uh, last night, and you can see behind him just the rows and rows of books. And generally, you know, when they do one of those shots of a uh, somebody sitting in their library in front of their books, they have, you know, like if you really look closely, like some of them are like Stephen King paperbacks. They just put like 
books and books on their shelf to make them look more scholarly. But the way that this DVD was shot, there's these different angles of Stan as he's talking. And you can see all of these book titles, and they are all definitely related to the field, and it's it's impressive. It's like it's what I can imagine uh, your brain must look like if it was a bunch of bookshelves in a row. I had a bookshelf similar to like what he has. So, so and then uh, you put it all in your memory, and then you didn't need the hard copies anymore. That's the way it works. I don't have the hard <laughs> copies anymore. Well, that's a different show for a different time. We don't want to lose our own library, so we won't uh, push that issue for right now. Don't get married. <laughs> but uh, so if you would like to join in the discussion on that, please, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And if you would like to join more in the discussion about the Bridgewater Triangle and the Freetown State Forest in particular, have we got a night plan for you? It kind of came out of the blue. It was uh, related to the story that ran in the Boston Globe. The Freetown Historical Society got in contact with Spooky South Coast and, in particular, Matt Moniz, and they would like him to come and give a discussion. They would like us. Well, we're going to let you do most of the talking this time. But uh, we, we're putting together this uh, this presentation on November 21st. It's a Tuesday night. It will be – did they tell you the location yet, where exactly it's going to be? Yeah, and near building complex. Okay, so in Freetown, we'll have all the directions and all the information out on our website as it becomes available to us. But we're going to have a night where we discuss the Freetown State Forest, the happenings there, the Bridgewater Triangle. We're going to have it's going to be us three, Matt Moniz, Matt Costa, and myself. And we're going to be joined by Chris Pittman, who runs the definitive website on the. Uh, Bridgewater Triangle, who might be joining us tonight. Uh, also, Chris Balzano, who runs the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website, will be there as well. And he is actually working on a book about the Freetown State Forest. So he'll have lots of good information on that subject as well as you know everything triangle-related. So if you've had experiences out there or even if you haven't and you'd like to learn a little bit more, you know, definitely come out on the 21st, meet up with us, Share some experiences. You know, who knows? You know, maybe the spirit will move us into the woods uh, immediately following this event. I don't know. Are we that brave? Well, I have no problem with it. <laughs> it's not the. It's not the. Uh, as Steve Gonzalez said to me uh, last week when I was working on that story about fear junkies. You know, it's not. I'm not really afraid of the paranormal. It's the things that are alive that I'm afraid of. And I think that's the case. If you listen to a lot of the stories of cult activity out there in the Freetown State Forest. Uh, just as well as the general, you know, crazy people that take some of this stuff a little bit too seriously. Uh, you, you don't know what could be going on out there. So it, safety in numbers. So hopefully we'll have the numbers. Hopefully everybody will come out uh, to that presentation. We had a good response to our last uh, presentation uh, for the um, AHA. AHA program. And we got a, a nice crowd to that. So hopefully we can build on that and we can really get some people involved in the discussion about the paranormal here in the South Coast area. So, and have you had a chance yet, Matt Moniz, to catch Celebrity Paranormal Project? Part of one the other day. Was it the Connecticut one, the, the, the yes. hospital there? Did you catch it yet, Matt Moniz? I mean, Matt Costa. I haven't caught it yet. Oh, see, that was paranormal. So, uh, basically, you know, just I just wanted to just touch upon real quick one more time. I know I've been bringing it up every week, but it does, it, it is definitely taking the paranormal seriously i still have my doubts but it's also on the table i'd still love to hear what the what the listeners think about the show so you know if you want to call in and share and we're going to work on trying to get uh, some more information out of them as well so 
why don't we take a break because we have to uh, pay some bills here. And on the other side, we will talk to Stan Gordon about the Kecksburg UFO incident as well as a lot of other things related to the paranormal in Pennsylvania. So uh, if you want to uh, stick around and call in and join us, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services including Reiki, Kuan Yin, Magnified Healing, and Meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations' knowledgeable staff has over 40 years' experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. There's a touch of madness around here. Paranormal, is that what they're calling your kind these days? The revolution will be broadcast. And it will be broadcast right here on Spooky South Coast. Our special guest, Stan Gordon, who is on the line with us right now. Stan, since 1965, has been conducting on-scene investigations of mysterious encounters in the state of Pennsylvania. He has been involved with the examination of thousands of UFO and other strange reports from across the Keystone State. And recently, this, this past week, in fact, he celebrated his 47th anniversary as an investigator. If you'd like to learn more about Stan, jump on his website, stangordon.com, while we talk to him. Good evening, Stan. How are you doing tonight? We're doing fine, thank you. All right. And now, for those who might not have heard about the, the Kecksburg incident, this is like the, the Roswell for Pennsylvania. Uh, that's correct. This happened back on December 9th of 1965, and it's it's kind of a long story, but it's just uh, in a capsule, about 4.47 p.m. on that afternoon, from the tip of Ontario, Canada, through Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, multitudes of people observed this brilliant, fiery object moving across the sky. Now, there's a lot of things we've now learned since that day that we didn't know back on that particular day and from accumulation of interviews of hundreds of witnesses. But what we now know is this object, whatever it was, when it came in over the greater Pittsburgh area, it moved uh, roughly southeast into Westmoreland County over Greensburg, PA, and it made a turn towards the south. Now, you're talking about rural country now, farmland country. Mm -hmm. This object moving sequentially over these little villages out in that area that people saw from different locations and moved out towards the south, over towards the mountains near Laurelville, where people up in that area saw it and apparently made a turn and began to trek back towards the northeast, back towards Kecksburg, then turned and went down into the woods. Now, those people who saw it, especially within a few miles before the thing impacted, 
They said this thing was moving relatively slow. People said it was moving about the speed of an aircraft on approach to an airport. Those people who saw it go down into the woods said it didn't come down at a high-speed descent, like a reentry of space debris or satellite reentry, but it came in almost like a controlled landing. And moments after it fell, there was a column of blue smoke that rose up out of the woods. Well, one thing we do know, even that evening, as the news reports were coming in over a widespread area, what made the story much more fascinating was that the military began to show up in this little farm area of western Pennsylvania. And dozens and dozens of witnesses saw this, including reporters who went to the scene after hearing the reports and saw the military presence themselves. So it made national and local news that there was military on the scene. In fact, papers mentioned Army and Air Force personnel being involved in the search. But But the next day, the official explanation is that, yes, there was a sighting, something was seen in the sky, there was a search, but absolutely nothing was found in the woods, and officially today nothing was taken out, nothing was found. However, I I can remember this very well. Within days after the event happened, there was a lot of people talking about seeing a large military flatbed truck or trailer truck covered with a tarpaulin uh, of a large object covered with a tarpaulin being taken out of the air at a high rate of speed that night. Now, many years later, we now know that some individuals independently this is a large wooded area. Got down into that wooded area and came across this large, semi-buried, buried acorn-shaped object, semi-buried in the ground. Estimated this thing was probably about 10 to 12 feet in length or more, about 8 to 10 feet or so in diameter. As one witness who was very close to it, who's been a machinist all his life, said it looked to him like somebody took liquid metal and poured it into an acorn-shaped mold. There was no rivets, no seams, no fuselage, but at the the bottom, what they call the raised-up area of the acorn, the bumper area, there were these markings that raised up off the surface, which he said look much more like symbols than letters. And after many years of going to the library and looking for these type of symbols, he said the closest thing was ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. And uh, so independently, a number of different witnesses described seeing this very similar object on the ground. But of course... Officially, nothing was ever found, but, and again, we can talk about this for hours, but we now know from a lot of other resources that have either contacted me or people I followed up on that this object apparently left that area about 1 o'clock in the morning on this military flatbed tractor trailer with a military escort. It first went to Lockbourne Air Force Base outside of Columbus, Ohio, and then it was taken over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That was all on the morning of December 10th. Now, where, of course, it's at today, we have no idea. Now, one of the first uh, r- one of the first reports of somebody who saw it while it was still in the sky was uh, Randy Overly, who was, I believe, was he 10 years old at the time? Yeah, he was a youngster. He and his buddy were out there playing it. Randy, who unfortunately passed away last year, and we've lost, even the last several months, we've lost another key witness as well. And this is what's unfortunate, and this is why I've tried to document this for so many years and why I did the documentary film, is try to preserve at least some key witnesses, because there's hundreds, to try to keep their part of the story and their documentation alive. But Randy, he was near the little town of Norvelt, and he was out there at the time, and he and his buddy were playing, and far off in the distance, they heard heard this high-pitched hissing sound, and they looked up to see this object coming in their direction very slowly, moving towards them, and he said this object passed no more than about 200 feet overhead, and he said... 
he got such a detailed look at it because it was moving so slowly. And he said to him, it looked like it was kind of an acorn-shaped object. It was kind of a grayish-brownish color with a vapor all around it and different color flames coming from it. And it was making this hissing sound. And he watched it approach him, go right over his head, and move out to the south, out towards Laurelville. And he said, again, moving relatively slowly. That's why he had such a good look at it. And we actually have uh, the audio from your DVD of Randy describing what he saw. If you don't mind, we'll play that. Sure, go ahead. Okay. It's, uh, it's about two minutes, so if you just hang on with us. years old, I was playing with another friend of mine out in the middle of an open field by a creek. And uh, I heard a noise and looked to the, I believe it was northwest, and... Uh, we saw an object coming at us. We could see it a pretty good distance away. We watched it come, fly over top of us, and leave our vision. Um, the object was sort of acorn-shaped. It had a raised area around the back. It was a brownish-grayish color. There was fire coming out of the back of it. It had a rounded part on the very tip of it. It also seemed to be covered with some type of vapor wrapped around it as it flew over. It made a hissing noise. It was probably only 200 feet in the air when we saw it. And we saw it for a, you know, for a good distance coming at us. It had a reddish-yellowish flame, and it also had gr a greenish color in the flames. When it passed over us, it was probably only 200 feet in the air at the most, and it was moving no faster than a small aircraft. Uh, in fact, we saw it from a good piece away, probably a couple miles away, and were able to watch it approach us, fly over us, and fly away from us. So it wasn't moving very fast at all. Well, I know what I saw, and it definitely wasn't a meteor. I really can't explain what it is, what it was, but it certainly seemed to be a constructed thing. You know, it, it uh, had smooth edges and smooth lines, and didn't appear to be a meteor at all to me. So there you have it, Randy Overly, uh, in his own words, describing what it was that he saw. And now, as it came into uh, toward the Kecksburg area, there were more witnesses that saw it, uh, even a few uh, that saw it actually make impact. Yes. And again, momentarily after it fell, uh, people report, <coughs> excuse me, like dust and a column of like a bluish smoke going up over the woods, but it dissipated very quickly. Uh, again, what we now know is that independently, various people apparently went down to the scene very large wooded areas so different people entered into the woods from different locations. But, again, over the years, we had to actually, we, we would get leads from different people because a lot of people were very hesitant in coming forward over the years on this case. And uh, so, for example, it wasn't until 1987 that we had our first actual eyewitness to where the subject came down. Now, what was interesting was, you know, back in 65 when this happened, there was very little information on it. Nobody knew exactly where it came down. Uh, and, of course, officially the next day, it was said that nothing came down at all. So people were very hesitant to even talk about it. I was 16 back at that time. 
very hard to get any information. But over the years, I began periodically to get input. And during the 1980s, we began to get a lot of leads on the case, and a lot of things began to open up, and we really began to intensify our search. So it was during the mid-1980s, and we were searching that large wooded area, that we came across this large area, what appeared to be a pattern of tree damage, a trajectory of trees knocked down the same direction, tops of trees broken out, other trees were damaged. But we had what appeared to be a definite pattern of destruction. And we got a really good idea where we pinpointed where this, we thought this object may have come down. So in 1987, for, for many years, I was holding these large public UFO displays at the local mall out here, which brought in thousands of people. It was a huge event. And it was a great place for input for information. So a lot of people came forward with UFO reports or Bigfoot sightings or other phenomena to us. A lot of us came, came to us confidentially, and then we'd meet with them later and, and do interviews with these people. But we had a little bit of information on Kecksburg out there, and I happened to be out for dinner this one particular day in August, and one of my associates was there, and a man and his wife walks by, and they're looking over the stuff, and my associate's talking to another fellow about Kecksburg, and the guy says, excuse me, but you're talking about that event that happened out there in Kecksburg, and they said yes, and he said, well, I was one of the members of the search team that found the object. Well, of course, they pulled him off to the side right away, and he said, look, I don't want to get involved. My family doesn't want involved, but he did agree to meet with us and talk with us, and that led to many, many hours and years of, of research investigation. That turned out to be Jim Romansky. And Jim's story was that he was a 19-year-old fireman. He was not from Kecksburg. He was from another volunteer fire department in the county. They were called out to assist for a search for a possible downed aircraft in the Kecksburg area. So anyhow, his story is that they, he, had, he was not from that area. It was dark, of course, by the time they got there. It was almost dark when this happened. And they went to the Kecksburg Fire Station. They set up a search area, and they took different firemen from different trucks, and they began to leave them out in different areas to walk up into the woods to begin the search. And he said it wasn't that long after they heard on the radio that one of the search teams came across this downed object. So they went over near this farm where it came down, and, I mean, they're only several feet away from this thing looking from a bank down at this object, which was close enough for them to touch, basically. Nobody did. In the dark, not knowing the area, it looked like it made a trench when it came in. Well, anyhow, here's what's interesting. We told we took Jim out to the general area, taught him nothing, gave him no leads where to go. He said, look, I haven't been here since 1965, now it's 1987. But he remembered certain landmarks from that night, certain details, some things that we haven't even revealed yet. And he walked around there for quite a long time. He said, you know what, guys, I think we're right on the spot. Interestingly... We felt that the thing from the tree damage pattern came down to the right of this dry wash, like a creek area. Apparently, this thing came down right into that, that creek area. In the dark, it would give you the impression it was a trench. Okay. Now, what's interesting is a year later, 1988, we get a tip that there's another local man who also had gone down there, probably saw it right after it fell. That was Bill Bullybush. So we made contact with him, and he said, yeah, it's true, but he never reported it. Well, anyhow, he agreed to meet with us. So he takes us down from a different vantage point, which was this high overlook, which you saw in the DVD. Mm -hmm. They now call it Meteor Road because of that event. And that overlooks the whole Kecksburg area. So he went up the top of that hill after seeing this thing coming down. His story was Bill was out in his driveway that afternoon working on a CB radio. He happened to look up from the dash and saw this fireball moving from Norvelt, 
out by where Randy Overly would have seen it, moving out towards the mouth of Lauraville. So Bill gets out of his car, goes out to the road, and he sees this thing moving out to the mountain, and he said it kind of like hesitated, made a turn, and came back towards Kecksburg, and you could see it where it was going down. So he jumped into his Corvair, his old Corvair, went to the top of that hill, and looking down into the woods, down in that ravine, distance away, he could see these bright blue flashes of light. He said to me, it's like kids playing with sparklers. And he said, well, I, I hunt down there, and I know there should be anything like that. So it's dark, he has his flashlight, he makes his way down through those woods. So now going back to the story, he, he takes us down from Media Road side, takes us down through the woods, he stands behind the tree, and he points over and says, guys, that's exactly where it was. That was the exact same location that Jim Romanski took us to the year before, but from a different perspective. And and didn't somebody tell uh, didn't somebody tell Bill that it was uh, the camera strobe from some boys playing down there that? Well, I'll tell you where that story came from. I'm the one that actually released that many many years ago. Okay, and that's first of all that could not have been the case at that time. You got to remember now this is this is minutes after the object fell. Okay. And others are reporting a bright blue light down on the woods. But later during the evening, as the story begins to unfold on the Pittsburgh area news media, from the radio stations, TV stations breaking in with special news reports, hundreds of people began to descend into the Westmoreland County, to the Kecksburg area, to try to see what's going on. And then the news media is responding, so there's reporters on the scene as well. Now, you've got to visualize, if you saw in that video, they're up on that curved, mountainous, very narrow road, which is boring that wooded area. Mm-hmm. There's hundreds of people on this little winding road. But what they didn't know was the thing actually fell way in the opposite side of the woods, down in the ravine, which they can't see what's going on down there. Okay, On that opposite side of the woods was an old farm lane. And it was on that old farm lane where a number of people found their way in, and that's where most of the military activity was going on, where military trucks were, a lot of military people, other specialists were over on that side of the woods that most of the, that you really couldn't see much of that activity from up on Media Road. Okay, now, those, I found out from interviewing some fellows later on that they indeed, later in the evening, after hearing the radio reports, they went out to the area themselves to look around, and yeah, they were teenagers, and they had a camera with a strobe, and they were going down around the edge of the woods and at times flashing the camera which is no doubt some people saw those flashes too. But that has no bearing on the fact that they weren't there right after the thing fell. More interestingly, some of those guys as teenagers at the time, one of these guys has turned out to be an executive for a major company, which I have a statement from him. He himself saw the military trucks and the military flatbed tractor trailer down on the woods that night. It's amazing, too. There's at least what I could count in the DVD, at least a half a dozen uh, eyewitnesses who claim to have seen the object, and they give similar descriptions to it. And uh, almost to a man, they all say that they saw this object either being transported away on a flatbed or other people saw an object under a tarp on a flatbed that could fit that description. Right. It's, yeah. There's way too much uh, synchronicity in these reports for them to, to not be true. Well, you know, I, I've worked... On, again, on thousands of UFO cases, strange animal reports, all kind of things. And I've, over the years, when I when I voluntarily had these research groups that I founded from 1970 through 1993, we had probably we were the only group in the country that ever did this. We did this around our own time and pockets, out of our own pockets, around our jobs for many many years. 
But back in 1970, when I started the first group, I tried to set this up as a quick response team of research people. We had scientists, engineers, former military, law enforcement people, all kind of specialists that responded to sighting locations. We tried to conduct, and we did conduct hundreds of investigations within minutes to hours after they occurred across the state of Pennsylvania. We did this for years. And as investigators, we were very objective, very skeptical, and in many, many cases we were able to figure out what people saw or what was causing various phenomena to occur. But then again, there were many sightings you could not easily explain away by very confident people, many cases with physical evidence. But as with the Kexper case, and even today, there's a lot of little details we haven't given away. There was, over the years, there were specific little details that so many other people could verify they had no way of knowing about. So many people, even today, independently, I can tell you this, the high percentage of Kexburg witnesses, even today, have not gone public, and most of them have no idea who these people are. Many of these people now have grown up to be, you know, they're, they're police officers, teachers, they're, they're all kind of specialists, very competent people, but they were young kids or teenagers back when this happened. But their descriptions and the details, all the pieces of the puzzle fit together, and that's what made it so interesting. What really strikes me, too, is the witnesses uh, that at least are interviewed in the DVD, uh, they don't seem to be the type of, you know, they're not the common people you'd expect to report UFO sightings. You know, they strike me as the kind of crowd that would be reluctant to talk about this and that they only were talking about it because they'd lived with this so long and they couldn't explain it that they really wanted to get some answers out. I mean, you know, Western Pennsylvania is a, it's a, it's a different kind of stock. It's like pioneer stock out there. Oh, definitely. I mean, again... This is, this is farm country. This is a quiet, very tiny little community. But you also got to remember, many, there were many witnesses outside of that area that saw it coming across. There were many people from that community that saw the activity with the military or some of the people got down into the field. And there were many people that night came in from outside of the area, from around western Pennsylvania, from the greater Pittsburgh area, after hearing in the reports, who tried to get down into the woods, tried to see what was going on, and, of course, the area was cordoned off, and we have reports from various independent people that they tried to get down into the woods, were stopped by armed military personnel, and in some cases were, were actually stopped by armed military personnel who aimed weapons at them. Now, that's something that's completely unusual. Exactly. Because here you have military... It's also illegal, Stan. Oh, yes. Here you have military people coming into other people's private property, preventing other people from going to other people's private property at gunpoint. Now, and we still ask the question, where did that jurisdiction come from? Well, exactly. And and not only that, I mean, it had to have been some sort of national defense. No. Uh, we have what's known as posse comitatus, which means that the U.S. military is not allowed to use active military personnel to quell any form of public unrest, whether it be civil or uncivil. Well, one thing that is uh, definitely worth noting, too, is in addition to all these eyewitnesses who, you know, were just common folk, there was uh, reports of volunteer firemen and and, uh, local residents, but there was also uh, the news reporter John Murphy from WHJB as well as uh, two reporters uh, from the local newspaper that were also involved in this that actually documented this on their airwaves and in print. Oh, not just them, but there were many others. And... There's a lot of interesting little coincidences, and, and again, it may mean nothing, but for example, the major, all the major TV stations, the Pittsburgh Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 11, were on the scene. 
Okay, I personally knew the, the back then it was film, not video. So these, I knew the cameraman had filmed the news shots for that night. They were on TV the next day. They were on black and white. I, I saw at least one of them. Okay, we tried for years and years to try to get any of that archival footage because you know every once in a while they show a lot of vintage stuff going back to the heck 40s and 50s from these different stations but not one station can find any of the footage for that for that incident now that could be just coincidence some say well things are just missing whatever but it's kind of interesting that that hasn't shown up and in addition to that too it's uh the uh, uh i'm sorry the audio package put together by john murphy uh for rebroadcast on WHJB uh, the Object in the Woods special that he was putting together. Uh, didn't something strange happen to that as well? Yeah, that was interesting because John Murphy, the news director, and other people at the station, John was the first reporter on the scene. He got there, he was at the station 6.30 doing the evening news, and calls have been coming into that station about many, many people coming in, calling in, reporting, seeing this thing coming over the Greensburg area. And... Uh, this one particular call came in from the mother of a young boy who the media later focused on. And um, she called in after the 6.30 news. you got to remember now, it happened about 4.47 p.m. But she said, whatever this thing, whatever this was, it came down apparently in a wooded area not too far away from where they lived. She saw the blue smoke going up and dissipating after the, the boy pointed the area out to her. But anyhow, John, after that, called the state police agreements at Troop 8, uh, barracks, gave them the information. He headed out to Kecksburg. He didn't know the area. He headed out there. And uh, he was there about an hour before the state police fire marshal, Carl Metz, and another investigator arrived at the scene with the young boy and his mother and a few other people. And they all stood there. And uh, now, John Murphy was not allowed down in the woods. But remember this. He was there long enough to get down into the woods before they arrived. We believe, and he told his wife and others that he, and, and he never made this public, but he said he himself went down into the woods and saw this object. And apparently he took photographs of it because some people saw them. Okay, those pictures have never turned up. Some of those pictures were apparently confiscated, but he got some out of there that some other people saw. But those pictures, again, and all his notes and everything all turned up missing. But getting back to the story... He decided to put together this radio special called Object in the Woods, which was aired about a week later. But back then, of course, it's all real to real. He did a lot of interviews, talked to a lot of people, but right before they went to air the show, various people called in and said they didn't want their voices used on the air. One person said they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Army. Another one said they were afraid of getting in trouble with the state police, so they had to do a censored broadcast. And on my video, if you heard it, there is some of the actual censored broadcast from that broadcast that they did back in '65. Absolutely, and it's it's fascinating stuff. Uh, and then, of course, uh, what happened was after these changes happened to this, uh, John actually stopped talking about it. Oh yeah, um, his wife, the people who were close to him, said this was like a, probably his biggest news story. He was a very active newsman. He did a lot of research on this. He was very gung ho, and not long after that. He just didn't want to talk about it anymore. His whole personality kind of changed. He didn't talk about it when people brought it up. But what's more interesting is this. Uh, again, some of those interviews are on the video. Other people have verified the story. Apparently, 
between the incident happening and putting together the broadcast, some government men reportedly came to WHJB, their radio station, to talk to John Murphy. More than one person there verified this account. They said they went in, talked to him privately. When they came out, he was extremely upset, and he told at least one person down there, which was Linda Fosha, who was the continuity director, that these government men had confiscated some of the or confiscated the tapes that he did. We don't know how many, but some of the tapes that he did for the broadcast, and he was very, very upset over it. And uh, then a short time later, his wife, the people down there all said, complete change of personality. Here's this big story. Didn't want to talk about it anymore. And uh, you had a copy of the program as well. Something happened yes. to your copy? Well, that was back in about 69. Uh, John uh, was uh, out of state on vacation, and uh, he was involved in an accident, and... Uh, he was killed. But interestingly, it was probably, oh, geez, it's hard to remember now, it was right before that happened that he sent me an, his original master copy of, that, of the original tape, and I immediately copied it and sent it back to him. So nobody's ever found that original master, but mine, interestingly, the original copy I had disappeared. Now, I had moved at the time, but all my other tapes that I had from that time I have. So I I have no idea what happened to that tape. Well, we can we can certainly speculate, but I, I'm sure our listeners uh, have a good idea in their mind what might have happened as well. Now, uh, one thing that I wanted to touch upon too is the while these uh, military people were surrounding whatever had fallen, uh, they also took over a local family's farm, the Hayes family. Uh, just talk about some yeah. of the strange goings on that happened uh, there that both the the mother and the son relate on the DVD. Okay, now this is and actually what it is it was a small farmhouse that they were renting, but they had so they had farm animals there, like for example, all right. And I was mentioning to you at the end of this little farm lane is where a lot of this activity is going on. At now you have to, you have to visualize there's a farm lane down to the left of it is lots of fields going down into this big wooded ravine where the thing came down. So John's a young kid. Quite a number of siblings, little houses, windows. The kids are all very excited about all this activity going on around their house that night. Uh, anyhow, what John Hayes very well remembered was military people, soldiers in his home and outside of his home. They're like, here's a young kid. I'm like, all excited. They see military truck. There's guys in uniforms in his house, outside of his house. So anyhow, the small house, and apparently that night these military people were coming in using their telephone but reversing the calls. And at times they could hear bits and pieces of the conversation. Well, the military told the family, the parents, to send the kids upstairs. Well, they were upstairs, but John was all excited, and he kept making us go up and down to the bathroom to see what was going on. And um, he said at one point he heard, he heard a phone call and he heard a conversation NASA would be arriving soon. And he said it wasn't long after. It was a knock on the door. He looked out. There was at least one guy, several guys in white like moon suits, and one had a NASA insignia on. And others around the scene that night reported men in, in moon suits as well, working around that area on that farm lane up there and uh, in other areas as well. There's a lot of interesting little tidbits from around that farm lane. Uh, those people who found themselves on that farm lane is where that's where a lot of their interesting little stories come from. For example, uh, Jerry Betters, who around the Pittsburgh area was very well known as a uh, jazz musician, 
back in the 60s. And Jerry came forward many, many years later. He had never seen the TV shows about it, but he had talked to some friends for years about this experience. Then finally one of his friends told him about search, and they contacted me, and we got together. And never forgot when uh, Kennedy was assassinated, and he never forgot this night. And he lived uh, in a little area called Murraysville at the time. He had a little uh, horse farm out there. And so it's between Pittsburgh and Greensburg. And late that afternoon, there was a bright flash in the sky that startled the horses. And a short time later, he heard about this object being seen in the sky. So he wondered if that had a connection between the flash of light that scared his horses. Anyhow, he heard that this thing came down near Kecksburg. He called some friends because he didn't have a car at the time. And they didn't know the area, but they found their way out to that area, which, again, they described certain details on the farm lane. So now, the, Hay- the Hayes house you're talking about was being rented. That would have been way down on the end of that farm lane, down into the field is where this house was located. So the military's coming in there, and as some people describe, like using it as a temporary command post that night, working around there using their telephones at times. Now, Jerry and his friends find his way, their way onto the farm lane, and they're pulling on there, and they're seeing activity up there, and they're seeing a bunch of young soldiers and all. And Jerry said, what caught his eye, he's looking down, he see all these soldiers, he sees so many soldiers out there, and trying to come up out of the field, he said, I could see as clear as a bell, here's an army flatbed tractor trailer truck having trouble coming up out of the hill, out of the field coming up the hill. But he said, on the back of the trailer, he said, I, for whatever reason at that time, he could see the object, but there was no tarp on it at that point. He said, I don't know why, but there was no tarp. I could see it clearly. He described it. He said, you know, I expected to see, if I ever saw a UFO, like a flying saucer type thing. That This was not a saucer. This was shaped like an acorn with the hieroglyphic markings at the bottom. He described it clearly. And he said, I'm watching this thing, and all of a sudden this army officer starts coming out screaming and yelling at these other soldiers, get him out of here, get him out of here. And all these young soldiers aimed their rifles at the people in the car to make him get out of the area. So there's lots of interesting little stories about this. Now, getting back to the Hayes family, John Hayes and the kids, the woods was their playground. They know the woods very well. They're down there every day playing. The next morning after the incident happened, they realized that the military cut their fence line. They had a fence to keep the cows in. Well, they cut the fence to bring the trucks down to the edge of, the, of their ravine where they took the object out. So the first thing they had to do was fix the fence. So the kids get down into the woods the next day, John and his brother get down, and they see trees knocked down, broken trees, and they said, hey, it was all normal the day before. It wasn't normal now. So now here's another person, John Hayes, independently, not not with Bill Bullybush, not knowing Jim Romanski, independently took us down to the exact same location that those two guys took us to independently where the event happened. Um, John is down there with his brother the next day. Now, here's an interesting detail that we've had more information on this in the last couple of years. In fact, even a, a local newspaper story that for years and years we tried to get just in the last year surfaced, which is, it's the local closest local small-town paper that, deal, that dealt with the case, but it was only a weekly paper, so it only came out once a week. But it was a very nice, detailed story with photographs of a bunch of the the fellows back there in 65 watching down the ravine looking at this thing that night, it verifies this information as well that even though the object came out around 1 o'clock in the morning, which had been the morning of December 10th, and, of course, the next day the paper state nothing's there, nothing was found, 
even this paper verifies, as well as even the Pittsburgh Press, that the military and government is not in the numbers of the night before, but the next day, Friday morning, and the next day, Friday during the day, there's still military people still in the woods, still searching for evidence the next day. So we have many independent people telling that as well. Even the newspaper mentions that. Okay. Now, if nothing was found and nothing was taken out, why would they still be searching the next day? Or even if it was a, a meteor, as the official explanation uh, claims. Now, well, now the official explanation was a meteor, not even a meteor. There were some people on the scene told it was a meteorite, that there was something that made it to the ground and, and, and there was something there physically. But officially, that was not even the case. They said they saw a meteor in the sky, but not a meteorite. Nothing was found on the ground at all. If it was a meteorite, first of all, something of that size, it would have been a huge amount of damage in a crater. And secondly, if it was a meteorite, why all the secrecy? Exactly. You wouldn't have the military respond. You would have scientists from universities respond, and nothing like that turned up. And following the other path, uh, the you know the hidden object on the flatbed truck, uh, that was brought uh, to uh, eventually to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And then you have an interesting story from a witness who claims to have seen uh, what they did with it after that. Yes. And there's more than one witness who has verified that story. That was Myron, the truck driver. Is that who you're responding to? Or yeah, that's, that's who I'm referring to, okay. Myron. Um, actually, in 1990, when Unsolved Mysteries did a season premiere on the case, before that came on the TV during that summer, a man approached me. Who I checked his credentials out, and he had very, uh, very good background that we were able to check out. He said, "Look," he said, "I was a part of the Air Force security team that guarded this object when it came into Lockbourne Air Force Base the morning of December 10th." He said, "We were made aware that this object had been recovered in Pennsylvania. It was coming into Lockbourne Air Force Base. It did not come into the base from the normal entrance way, as most vehicles do." He said the security on the base during that morning was much higher than when President Kennedy had visited the base previously. They were given a shoot-to-kill order to anybody that approached this hangar. They backed this truck up with a flatbed into this hangar, set up a security area, and they were given a shoot-to-kill order to anybody that approached the air without the proper identification. Now, this guy wasn't on the security team that long. He was called off, but he said he heard that it went over to Wright-Patterson. So... After the Unsolved Mystery Show aired, uh, there was just a huge, huge response from all over the country. I mean, I, we are just deluged with new information on the case. This came from people who used to live in this area that moved away from other sources around the country. That information from alleged military sources, from uh, anonymous tips, some which were very fascinating. But one report came in from Myron. The Myron called me. He said, look, he said, I guess now that it's on TV, I'm allowed to talk about it. And his story was that he worked for this large Ohio supply house. And two to three days after the event happened, a Navy officer brought to the supply house a special type of glazed engineering brick. They placed a very large order to go to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And now there was a second truck driver who initially would not talk to us about it. He wouldn't deny it. He wouldn't get involved in it. But finally, he did talk to us. In fact, Leonard Stringfield, you may recognize that name. Well, Leonard Stringfield was the man who coined the term, uh, uh, <laughs> talk about uh, UFOs and UFO crash retrievals of UFO crash cases. So 
So Len was from Ohio. He was very well known. He wrote several special reports on uh, UFO crashes. Saucers in the Pentagon pantry. Right. And uh, Len and I worked together for many, many years, and he helped to work on this and some aspects of the Kexford case as well to follow up on some aspects of it in Ohio. But anyhow, um, what I was told was the second the second witness told me and told us that he actually took the first load of bricks to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. They came in through a they were brought into the area. They were escorted to this location. When he came in the first day, he said the military flatbed trailer was still outside of this warehouse building, and there was a tarp over it. And he said the handle looked like a big Liberty Bell, which is very much similar, of course, in description to an acorn. Mm -hmm. The next day, he and Myron took two truckloads of these bricks to the same location. They were escorted in by a high-ranking officer and some other military personnel in a jeep into that area. They were told, do your job, don't be looking around, just get your bricks unloaded. So they did their job, and Myron was very curious because there, there's no the, tra the trailer's not there anymore at this point, but there's men in white coveralls with some Navy insignias and other Navy identification with sidearms coming in out of this building, periodically changing their outer clothing. And he's wondering what's going on. So when he thought that nobody was around, he stuck into the entrance to look. And he said, up on the scaffolding, there's ladders going up, and here's this big, again, this big acorn-shaped object, like a big bell, metallic, kind of an off-gold color, up on the scaffolding. And these guys apparently are trying to open this thing up, trying to get inside of this thing. Well... He began to ask a few questions. These guys going in and out, and apparently, initially, they must have thought he had a clearance to be there. Then realized he didn't. So at one point, he's facing threats, and they told him, "You saw something you're not supposed to see. If you talk about this, we're going to put you in jail and throw away throw away the keys. But in 20 years, this will all be public knowledge." And of course, 20 years later, that never happened. But after he saw it on the TV show. He said, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it because they're, they're talking about this thing now, so I, I guess I can discuss it. So that's kind of intriguing. So you had two people there independently who verified the story. And uh, what, what we'll do is we're coming up on the CBS News break here, uh, and then we'll do the Week and Weird on the other side. But then when we get back into the discussion, we'll talk about what Myron revealed to you that he saw in addition to what was going on with the ship. And then what we'll also talk about as well is we'd like to really get into some discussion with you, too, about Bigfoot. Yes. Uh, and certainly some of your research in that area as well. And we'll talk to you about uh, our own little paranormal area here, the Bridgewater Triangle, and, and the interesting discussion that you had at the Mass Monster Mash. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. I'm knitting myself a hat. And I'm sewing up a head to wear it on. I'm making myself some mittens. And I'm stitching my fingers together to keep them warm inside. I'm knitting myself a sweater. To cover the body I'm wearing. Knitting, 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 knitting. 
South Coast is Back here to Spooky South Coast, hour number two. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll get back into the discussion about not only the Kecksburg UFO incident, but uh, Bigfoot and a whole host of other topics as well with Stan Gordon. And as we were saying at the bottom of the first hour, in case you missed it, you definitely want to order this DVD uh, if you want to learn more about this case. I mean, we're only touching on the very tip of you know, some of the eyewitness testimony and some of the goings-on, and to see the artist uh, depictions of what was seen and to hear some of the John Murphy uh, audio as well. It's it's really just a fascinating DVD, and you can pick that up on Stan's website, stangordon.com, and that's where you can also keep up to date, too, with uh, all of his investigations and all the new information as it comes out. So make sure you check that out. Also, you know, we asked a question, Matt Moniz, uh, last week about how TAPS was going to analyze the evidence that they gathered from their big five-hour investigation of the Stanley Hotel that aired live on Halloween night on the Sci-Fi Channel. And, of course, those who watched Ghost Hunters this week saw that next week they will have a special episode where they talk about the evidence review. So that will definitely be a must-watch TV. I'm still working on getting through the uh, the actual five-hour investigation. Uh, unlike yourself, you were able to stay up and – watch the entire thing and i know that matt costa you checked in with it a little bit as it was going on i watched the first half hour and i i couldn't stay up anymore and i went to sleep and when i woke up i checked back in at 4 a.m and i just really didn't have much time to to watch any of it so i'm slowly but surely getting through it so my goal is to finish it before they actually reveal what it is that they found because i don't want to do this backwards so uh it was definitely a, a interesting experience and i it got huge ratings for them i know that very huge. So uh, I'm sure this is something that they'll plan again in the future. Also, if you are planning your future calendar, don't forget, November 21st, uh, in front of the Freetown Historical Society, we'll be giving a presentation on the Freetown State Forest as well as the Bridgewater Triangle. The three guys here, the Spooky Crew, will be there, as well as Christopher Pittman and Christopher Balzano, two of the best sources for information on the subject of the Triangle and the State Forest. So... Pay attention to SpookySouthCoast.com, where we will update you on all that stuff as we go along. But right now, before we get back into the discussion, we're going to do a little thing we like to call The Week in Weird. And our first story comes from the Associated Baptist Press, as well as uh, other sources as well. I kind of compiled some of the reports, and it doesn't have a total religious slant to it, but... 
Released in September, the Baylor Religion Survey is a comprehensive look at the religious beliefs of more than 1,700 Americans. Among its many findings were significant percentages of Americans who said they believe in haunted places, that was 37%, believe in haunted places. Uh, 12.5% say they had consulted a psychic or fortune teller, and 20% felt that it was possible to communicate with the dead. Similarly, a December 2005 Harris poll reported 4 in 10 Americans believe in ghosts, 28% believe in witches, and a quarter of Americans believe in astrology. Those are surprising findings for a culture that values variable science, I'm sorry, verifiable science and conservative religious beliefs. Perhaps most surprising is the role education plays in determining belief in the paranormal, but it's not what you think. Those who attended college were more likely than those who did not to believe in UFOs and alternative healing therapies, according to the Baylor study. Leslie Northrup, an associate professor of religion and culture at Florida International University, is an expert on religion and broadcasting. He said he wasn't surprised that educated people tend to be more interested in the paranormal, since it's the more advanced classes in high school and college that challenge students to question the possibility of things beyond the physical world. And of course, you know, we can vouch for that and the people that we've come in contact with. Apparently, with exposure to abstract concepts like quantum physics, I'm sorry, quantum physics and the vastness of the universe comes the willingness to consider the possibility that things aren't exactly what they seem. And science, tell, uh, science is telling us that lots of things we don't understand are going on in the natural world, Northrop said. Parallel universes and all of those things certainly may be true in science. This is kind of a natural progression from a very modernist view of the world to a postmodernist view. Science is actually leading the way in terms of metaphysics now. So there you have it, a little bit of a little bit of the verifiable proof there that absolutely people do believe more in the paranormal than they ever have before. I think he had it right the first time. Variable. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But, you know, with, with a lot of these programs that have uh, come about, there is more interest overall, pop culture-wise, in the paranormal. And I think that when that happens, it, it kind of makes all of society more receptive and more accepting of it and then you will get scientists such as yourself who do have an interest in the paranormal not everybody's as open about it as you are some people are interested in this and they dabble in it on the side and now when there's a little bit more popular focus on it then they might say well hey i've been working on this or hey this is something that i've been exploring what do you think and it might open those doors a little bit more I agree. Uh, that's the whole point of science is to be open to anything and look at it for yourself. Make make your own judgments. And uh, hopefully people, uh, when they make their judgments, they make a judgment of willing to listen. Because closed-mindedness when it comes to science and expecting everything to be objective and, and totally flatlined, it's not really doing science any justice. No, that's, that's not science. That's stagnation. So we'll get into that <laughs> in a little while. But, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us, while we're talking about science, uh, about something new. All right. It's, uh, it's from NewScience.com. A brand new substance was created from water. If you think we know all there is to know about water, think again. Scientists claim they have created a totally new alloy out of hydrogen and oxygen molecules by splitting water. It takes high-energy x-rays and extremely high pressure, but at the end result is a solid mixture of H2 and O2 that has never been identified before, they say. The discovery could change the understanding of the complex of complex chemistry of water. The new alloy is a highly energetic material, says Wendy Mao at Los Alamos National Laboratory, who uh, leads the research. 
it may help find us a way of storing energy. Mao's team subjected water to pressure 170,000 times greater than atmospheric pressure at sea level. They then bombarded it with x-rays, causing the water molecules to split and reform into a previously unknown crystalline solid made of H2 molecules and O2 molecules. The phenomenon has been missed by hundreds of previous experiments by other researchers because it only happens after several hours of exposure to a 10 kilo electron volt x-rays, which is actually a, a, a good amount of x-rays. We managed to hit on just the right level of x-ray energy input, says team member Russell Helmling at the Carnegie Institution's Geophysical Laboratory in Washington, D.C. Any higher and the radiation tends to pass right through the sample. Any lower, the radiation is largely absorbed by the diamonds in our pressure apparatus, he explains. After making several nanograms, which is, uh, you know, basically a very small amount, uh, of the new alloy, researchers tested its properties by subjecting it to a range of temperatures and pressures and further bombardment by x-rays and laser radiation. As long as it remained under pressure 10,000 times greater than that of sea level, it was surprisingly stable, they say. Under pressure, water is known to form 15 different types of ice with a variety of crystalline structures, but in all of them, hydrogen and oxygen atoms remain bound to each other. The discovery that the molecules of oxygen and hydrogen can form an alloy opens up fresh avenues of research, including new possibilities for studying molecular interactions between oxygen and hydrogen, the researchers say. The existence of this new alloy is very interesting, but not hugely surprising, says Sean McWinney at the Royal Society of Chemistry in London, UK. Give high enough pressure, even hydrogen will behave as a metal. All the other heavier elements in the hydrogen group of the periodic table are metals, she points out. And that is true. The, you take uh, pure hydrogen, put it under pressure, it will form a metal. And it's, uh, it's always good when we can actually have a chemistry-related story and have an actual chemist read it to us and explain it. So there you have it, a new substance made from water. Now, if they can start making, you know, I don't know, fuel from water... Well, that is basically rocket fuel. Rocket fuel is hydrogen peroxide, H2O2. And uh, if somebody could maybe come up with a hydrogen-powered vehicle? Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm still working on my patent. You know, my, my vehicle's just sitting there. While it's sitting there, we might as well just convert it to hydrogen. It's not really... Then I wouldn't need the fuel pump anymore, right? Yeah, well, I already helped you do plumbing today. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We did. And there were some new substances That's, made out of that oh, water. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> Oh, that was terrible. All right. Matt Costa, what do you have for us? In the United Kingdom, residents of a Lancashire town who were concerned about objects seen in the sky are being reassured they are simply low-flying planes. People in Accrington reported seeing a plane apparently swooping to avoid a cluster of objects, but the objects turned out to be planes waiting above the town as fog delayed landing at Manchester Airport. Some of the sightings may have also been balloons released in a fundraising event for the Northwest Air Ambulance. A spokeswoman 
for Man- Manchester Airport said fog caused incoming and outbound, outbound flights to be delayed and space the takeoff and landing of planes more than we normally do. We hold the planes and bring them in when there's an appropriate slot. It is standard practice. The foggy conditions cleared later on in the morning and the air traffic returned to normal. Well, you know, sometimes uh, some of these reports that go on, they, they are quick to explain them away. Uh, and sometimes it's a cover-up. As we are hearing, uh, talking with Sam Gordon here. What are you trying to say? You don't. You I don't... think it's a cover-up. All right, I was going to say. I'm supposed to think it's, it's a cover-up. Those English folk are no, there tricky are, devils. Yeah, there's lots of sightings in the UK, and it's it's almost like they've got this, you know, response team of kind of like what Stan was talking about, where they have a response team when there is a sighting to try and investigate it. They have a response team ready to go and debunk it because it just seems to always happen, and, and for whatever reason, and this is a whole other show unto itself. Though the UK is a magnet for these visitors. Great. Well, real quick, we're going to tell you just real quickly about one little story that we don't condone, by the way, because we here at Spooky South Coast do not condone the use of Ouija boards. But this article was interesting from CNET.com. This is written through their words. When we first heard that occultists were using the new iPod to channel spirits, we had our doubts. Why would ancient spirits choose to manifest themselves in consumer electronics? Don't they prefer the dusty seclusion of basement seances? Apparently not. The introduction of the ClickWheel Alphabet search system in the new iPod fleet has opened the floodgates to a new breed of occultists. Not only can the ClickWheel emulate the traditional Ouija board and planchette, but it does so in a small, portable format. Leading Ouija boardists have discovered that the iPod can not only provide the traditional letters and numbers of the board, but spirits are now able to pick songs or playlists to convey their messages. Kind of like a Dickie Goodman kind of thing there. Uh, they decided to try this out on Halloween. They said their Ouija board was a new electric pink iPod Nano. They placed their fingers on the iPod, and their PC editor invoked ancient chants to open a gate to the world beyond. Okay. Once they were fairly sure a spirit had possessed the iPod, they asked it, What is your name? This first effort was unexpectedly successful. It took a while for their fingers to move around the click wheel, and the iPod shifted about a bit on the desk, which, you know, they say is to be expected when channeling other worlds. The spirit's name appeared to be Brad. They asked Brad, when did you die? The results of this question were rather less impressive. Perhaps Brad had become petulant. Perhaps he didn't want us, uh, them summoning him and asking bothersome questions. Alternatively, Brad was bad at spelling. And you can see what the actual screen said if you go to the CNET website. Uh, they asked Brad, how did you die? Their fingers slipped on the click wheel and transitioned to a different menu. Clearly, bad, uh, Brad wanted to communicate with us using the medium of song. Their fingers scrolled slowly through the tracks, and as it neared the M section, it slowed to almost a stop before settling chillingly on Murder Incorporated. It was a shock to them, uh, not only for what it said, but the fact that the ghost liked Bruce Springsteen. They asked Brad some more questions, which he refused to answer in any coherent manner. After a long pause, our fingers shot their fingers shot down the track, listing again, spinning the click wheel like a demonic merry-go-round. The wheel settled on Better Be Home Soon. Brad was telling them he wanted to go. They all took their fingers off the iPod planchette and let Brad return to the spirit world. The iPod iWeeja board, that's pretty cute, works far better than the traditional Ouija board. During future sessions, they intend to pull the plug. Uh, they intend to plug it into a loud stereo system to increase the scary quotient when a spirit picks a track. They wanted to let, if you channel any uh, spirits with your iPod, they want you to let them know and let us know at SpookySouthCoast.com. Now, of course, this was 
very much tongue-in-cheek for the Halloween holiday, but it is interesting because, you know, the basic premise of it is correct. You do basically have a a electronic version of a Ouija board with a planchette. So maybe some people will try it and see what happens. Let us know. We don't really recommend it, but we are interested in finding out. So there you have it. That is the Week and Weird. If you have a Week and Weird story you'd like to submit to us, go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the message board, find the Week and Weird room there, the Week and Weird thread, post it up there, and if we use it, we'll give you credit. We'll be right back with more with Stan Gordon right here on Spooky South Coast. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM, into the night and beyond, here's more of Spooky South Coast. And I'd seen the bell shape there, and they was working on it. I also seen an object laying on the workbench over there, and the workbench runs about 10 to 12 feet long and about 32 inches wide and about four or three foot, about 36 inches off the floor. I seen the left hand of ever what was in there sticking out underneath of the sterile white pad, and he only had three fingers. It was about four foot nine or or four foot five inches tall if it was standing up. But it looked like it would weigh about 80 pounds. And it had dark green or brownish skin, and it was just like a lizard. There you have it. That is the report from Myron about what he saw uh, laying on the table there at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base after he saw the ship uh, that was bricked in, and we are talking to Stan Gordon about the Kecksburg UFO case. And uh, wh- how did you feel when when Myron told you that? Because that's something that he didn't originally reveal to you, right? Well, we were pretty shocked. We were there filming for the uh, documenting film Kecksburg: The Untold Story, and as you saw in the video, Myron didn't look like he was in very good health. He was on oxygen, and uh, we questioned him, "Why are you telling us now?" And basically, he said, "Well, you talked with his son about it, and he decided that he better tell us now because under the health conditions he was having, that he may not be around much longer." So he wanted us to hear the whole story. And you know, I tried many different ways to try to get him to change the story to exaggerate, and he said, "That's all I could see. I couldn't see anything but." just a basic body outline and the arm hanging down with the three fingers. And uh, so I, I believe he, he believes he saw what he saw, and uh, it makes one wonder if there may be more to the story than we really know. Absolutely, and, and of course, if you want to find out more of the story, as we said uh, previously, you can go to StanGordon.com and order the, the DVD, uh, and definitely, you need, if you're interested in UFOs and, and you're interested in the some of these major cases uh, that have been talked about over the years, you, you need this in your library. Uh, now, there were some, as we said, there was the quote-unquote official explanation, but one of the uh, possible avenues uh, for explaining this sighting could have been a, a Russian space probe? Well, I've had numerous people over the years approach me. All of them say they know positively what the object was. And when you try, when you trace it down, first of all, it, it may some of these descriptions may fit certain aspects of the case, but overall, it does. Nobody's come up with any evidence to really explain exactly for sure what this thing was. But one of the most popular explanations was the Soviet Venus probe, which was designated as Cosmos 96. Now, coincidentally, which is interesting, Cosmos 96, according to U.S. Space Command, re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. That same morning, December 9th, at about 3.18 a.m. in Canada. 
And this event happened about 4.47 in the afternoon. And, you know, we, we've looked into this and talked to many space experts, and uh, Leslie Kane, who was the uh, director of investigation for the Coalition of Freedom of Information, when they were backed by the Sci-Fi Channel, when they were doing an investigation on this case, and then they came up with the two documentaries on this event, uh, she did a lot of follow-up and investigation on the case as well. She talked to the two leading experts in the world on the Soviet space program. And one of the people she talked to was uh, Nicholas Johnson from the NASA Johnson Space Center, and he's a, a leading expert on uh, orbital debris. And uh, he was able to get the, the latest updated information on Cosmos 96 and other uh, Soviet and other reentry of, of space material and went back into the files and found that, and he indicated to her that he was certain that no parts of Cosmos 96 could have came down that afternoon in Pennsylvania around that time. And, in fact, he told her that there was no indication of anything man-made from any country came down that afternoon. And uh, you got to realize now we're dealing with an object, 1965. According to witnesses, this thing was large enough for a man to be standing aside of. This thing came in quite slowly. It made turns. It made a slow descent. There was no parachutes observed from anywhere along the track. And uh, the thing is pretty much, again, intact. There's no major damage to it. There's no rivets, no seams, no fuselage on it. So there's a lot of questions about what this thing was. But, again, one thing we do know, that the probe of Cosmos 96 itself was only about three feet in diameter. This thing was apparently much larger, whatever it was. So uh, it's just uh, it's another example, though, of they try to sync up these stories to explain something away. I mean, even that, to admit that it was a, a Russian space probe that they had taken into their uh, possession would be, you know, dangerous to admit because it goes against the U.N. agreement that they had not to uh, hold on to foreign nations' probes. But sometimes it seems like they'll give you a little bit of something in, in UFO research. They'll give you a little bit of something that they shouldn't say just to try to cover up for what really is going on. Well, from what we can tell from all the records we tried to obtain, the information we have, as far as anybody knows, the Soviets never requested the return of that material. The Soviets would easily have been able to track it just as well as we would. They would have known if they lost something. And, of course, there's some political aspects to this going back to the Cold War. But the whole thing is, if somebody had launched something, again, and there's no doubt in my mind, and other experts have said this as well, somebody else knew they launched even though it may have been secretive at the time. Somebody else knew somebody else launched something. And people are keeping track of these things. And uh, so there's still a lot of questions as to what this thing really was. And like we said, if you would like to find out a little bit more about the Kecksburg incident, definitely get the DVD at, at StanGordon.com. Uh, Matt, I'm sorry, you have a question? Yeah, one of my favorite explanations was the uh, a projectile fired from a railroad gun in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, there was another person who contacted us years ago and said he was positive that it was this projectile, and he wouldn't didn't want to get involved and give us a lot of information, but just the size and the capability, it just it didn't fit anywhere even close to what the description was and the maneuverability of what people saw. Well, you know, sometimes if you can put out enough disinformation, then people stop looking for the real information, unfortunately. Well, in this case, you've got so many witnesses and so many people, and, you know, it's unfortunate. So many of these people have gone to their grave and never had closure on this case. 
and there's so many witnesses today that just would love to have some closure, would love to have the government come out and say, look, it's been almost 41 years. If this was a Soviet probe, if it was something man-made, it was something secretive, why not just let the public see it, let them identify and say, yep, that's what we saw, and close the case on it. Exactly, and you have uh, on on your website too a a petition people can sign to have this uh, case examined more. Uh, the petition is still online, but uh, right now it's kind of in kind of a stagnant position on that. And uh, but we're hoping maybe at some point that we might be able to use some of that information. All right. Well, and another thing too is you investigate more. This is just one of the many cases that you've investigated over the years, as you've said. But uh, you also investigate just anything strange and unexplained in Pennsylvania. And, and one of the major focuses of your research is Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. Is there a, a, a high number of Bigfoot sightings in Pennsylvania? Oh, yeah. Bigfoot sightings reported every year. And uh, there's a particular area where we get a lot of reports along the Chestnut Ridge. It's a mountain range about 100 miles long. It runs from Preston County, West Virginia, through Westmore and Fayette, Indiana County, and Southwest PA. Historically, it's a, it's a hotbed for all kind of phenomena. It's kind of uh, like your own version of our Bridgewater Triangle. Right. And, uh, in fact, years ago, the Philadelphia Inquirer did a big story on our investigation, and they nicknamed it Pennsylvania's Twilight Zone, which I thought was kind of a neat title. But, uh, anyhow, there have been, uh, just year after year, reports come in from all these little villages along the borders along the Chestnut Ridge, from UFO sightings to Bigfoot sightings to Black Panthers to mountain lions to underground sounds to... Things falling out of the sky, the hauntings, I mean, just all kind of phenomena reported year after year. But we've had Bigfoot sightings. The first actual account I have on record goes back to 1931. But we've had sightings reported every year since 1972. And even though the public very rarely hears about them, because people even today are still very reluctant to report these things, even this year there's been some Bigfoot activity being reported. And if, if you'd like to jump into the conversation, too, with Stan Gordon, please give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And uh, now, what, what kind of evidence have you been able to, to gather in terms of Bigfoot, Stan? Well, actually, we've got we've had quite a bit of very interesting secondary evidence. In fact, right now I'm writing a book on the, the massive outbreak of Bigfoot sightings and other phenomena that occurred here in 1973. It was, is, and was, without a doubt, was the biggest outbreak of, of such phenomena ever recorded. This went on for not just one or two days. This went on for weeks and months uh, during the summer of 1973 into early 1974. Then it began to fade out. Why it happened, nobody will ever know. If this did not happen in just one small community, but it was going on in seven counties in southwest Pennsylvania and then in the eastern part of the state, the Pennsylvania Dutch country at the same time. It, again, it made a tremendous amount of news locally and nationally at the time. Uh, that's when I had my first group called the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group. And luckily, we already were pretty well prepared and out there investigating cases. We had a two-way radio system that I had set up uh, in my communications center in my home where we were dispatching the investigators out to the scene. But believe me, nobody ever expected that we would be dealing what we did in the summer of 1973. And there were... Many, many Bigfoot sightings, many in daylight, many at extremely close range. I mean, we're talking within 10, 15 feet of people. Some were multiple creature sightings. Many were multiple eyewitness sightings. But what was so amazing was the fact that we would get our teams, we'd get reports coming in. 
lot of the calls were coming in the police departments, which were being sent over to us to follow up to investigate. In some cases, the state police or other agencies, the PA, did investigate these cases. And in some instances, um, the investigating officers, they themselves, while not seeing the creature, they, they themselves also witnessed the really unusual animal reactions, which we saw in so many cases, especially with large, normally vicious dogs. I mean, when these creatures were at a distance, they would be barking and going crazy. When Generally, when they got close, they wouldn't move. They wouldn't bark. They wouldn't respond. They're almost like paralyzed in fear. And other animals on the farms would respond the same way. They would be huddling together. They would The animals in the house would be hiding in the corners. Even sometimes babies were reacting unusually, crying when these things were close by. But it was just amazing, the evidence. And in so many cases, we had trails of footprints. We had good detailed tracks. And interestingly, many of these were three-toed footprints. Now, some of this you'll see on my website as well. But um, this is what I'm writing a book about right now. And because not only were these Bigfoot sightings so amazing, the, the huge amount of them, the close proximity, some of the really strange aspects of it, but we're going into these cases very open-mindedly. We're gathering information. We have a lot of research people out there. We're going into this looking at the possibility we're dealing with an unknown zoological animal. And then, from the public, we're getting beginning to get some very oddball reports that, that began to make us really scratch our heads what we're dealing with. And then we had some cases which uh, very controversial, but very well documented at the time, where both UFOs and Bigfoot were seen at the same time and place. And once again, as I keep stressing, we don't know if there's any direct or indirect connection between the two phenomena. All we can say is, there were cases where both were seen at the same place at the same time, or yet other instances where, for example, you might have a, a low-level UFO sighting, then within hours to days you'd have Bigfoot sightings in the same area or vice versa. Do you have a theory as to why? Or? We, well, I can tell you that. Again, around the country and around the world there are cases like this. Many of them very few people know about because even the investigators are very reluctant to talk about it, even though others have published some of this in recent years. You're hearing a little more about it now. But the Bigfoot community, who is looking into a, an unknown zoological primate, doesn't like to get involved with the possibility of these things yeah. connect with another phenomena. The, big, the UFO people don't want to hear about Bigfoot. The point is, whether I like it or not, we're out there as investigators. We're gathering information. I don't know what this means, but this is what we're presenting. People can make up their own minds. I don't have the answers, but this is what was reported. Because we want have... me to give you a few examples of some of these cases. They're, they're amazing reports. Mm -hmm. We we have a similar situation here with the Bridgewater Triangle. It's there's uh, reports of both, and they are frequently uh, tied in together. Uh, and I mean, it, it, there could be something going on. I mean, it could be. Yeah, we could sit here and speculate all these different reasons, but the point is, is you know, no investigator should accept one and and totally disregard the other. Well, no, I mean, when I'm looking to any of these cases, we just document the information and see where the evidence leads us to, and the evidence over the years leads us to the possibility that there's a there's a lot more to the UFO and Bigfoot mystery than we know about. There's no one easy explanation for the for the unknown classification of UFOs and Bigfoot. You know, even myself, having investigated hundreds of Bigfoot sightings over the years, having seen a lot of evidence out in the field, talked to many very credible witnesses who have seen these things at very, very close range, even many in daylight. And I can tell you, we've had cases where people within 
five to ten feet of these things, amazingly as it sounds, and very well-documented cases. Well, what, now, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what will be really interesting is, you know, one day, one of these two stories, one of them will break. At some point, we will get to the bottom of one of these two mysteries, and then to see just how it could open the door to finding out more about the other. Exactly. But, you know, even the skeptics of Bigfoot say, and I have to agree, if these were normal flesh-and-blood animals, and that's not to say that some of these may not be, okay, but over all these years of all these sightings throughout the country and throughout the world, nobody yet has brought in one that somebody hit with a car, somebody that shot one, which I don't recommend going out and shooting at these things. Nobody's come across any really good tangible evidence except some hair samples, some casting of, of footprints, some other secondary evidence, but it's not enough to prove it. Yet, at the same time, the evidence we've seen, the patterns of it, the detailed reports highly suggest there's something out there, and yet there's very little physical evidence to indicate that. I have one really remarkable incident, if you want me to tell you about it, which might give us a reason why we haven't come up with this evidence. Sure. All right. During this wave of sightings in 1973, again, many reports, a, a small percentage with UFOs and Bigfoot seen together. One of the first really remarkable cases came in uh, from Beaver County outside of Pittsburgh, PA, where two uh, young women were out in the rural area. They were waiting for somebody to pick them up when this very large, hairy Bigfoot creature, white, hairy-covered creature, not very common with white ones, but it was white, is crossing the road, going into this wooded area. It's surprising enough they're seeing the creature, but it's carrying a small, glowing sphere in one of its hands. Okay? So the two girls run home to tell the landowner, one of the girls' fathers, they're very upset and they're all shook up. So he goes down into the woods right after it happens, and while he's down there... What they thought was, may have been an aircraft, they didn't know some kind of an object came across the sky, came over the wooded area, shot a beam of light down into the woods at the same time. So that was kind of interesting, okay? But here's the real interesting case. February 6th of 1974, and some of you who are listening remember we had a nationwide trucker strike and there was gas rationing at the time, all right? So we couldn't get up to Fayette County until early the next morning, but that night... This woman who lives up top of the mountain up near Ohio Pile State Park knew the area well, lived out in the country all her life, was not afraid of anything, heard a commotion behind her cabin in the garbage dump, like cans moving around. They had been having some wild dogs coming through, so thought the dogs were back. She grabbed a shotgun, loaded the shotgun. She was going to fire over their heads and scare them off. She turns on her porch light, opens up the front door, getting ready to shoot, and instead of dogs being there, and I, and I remember exactly how she described this to me. She said, it was a great big hairy ape, never called it a Bigfoot, standing just several feet in front of her with its arms straight up over its head like it was going to lunge on her or like surrender. And she said, I fired right into this thing with my shotgun. She said, I positively hit it. And she said, there was this bright flash of light like somebody took a picture and it disappeared. It was gone. Okay. Now, the rest of the story is, her son-in-law and family lived in a trailer 100 feet away. They heard the gunshot. They caught on the phone to find out what was going on to try to explain it to him. The son-in-law grabbed his pistol, started walking up to the house, and he told me what he said was four or five airy people with glowing red eyes like coals of fire surrounded him. He started shooting at him randomly and ran into the cabin. When they looked outside, there was an object. He said, like a big Christmas ornament with flashing lights hovering over the tree at the same time. Now... Because at that time of the violence on the highway, 
the state police and the National Guard were both traveling, patrolling the roads together. So both the state police and the National Guard went up to the scene. Now, by the time they got on top of the mountain, everything was gone. But as the troopers told me, he said, it was amazing to see the animal reaction. He said, all these cattle and horses are huddled together, but these big, vicious dogs, like one was an Eskimo uh, Spitz, a German Shepherd, dogs had been barking, should have been going after these guys. He, he said, I actually put my hand in some of the pens and tried to pull these dogs out. The dogs wouldn't move. He said they were, like, paralyzed and fear. They wouldn't bite. They wouldn't move. And he said it was unbelievable to see how these dogs reacted. Now, the next morning we got there, they were back to normal. But that's something we've seen in many cases. Like you said, animals, people can be fooled, but animals can't. And to see them respond that way is just amazing. I mean, like I said, I mean, we're really just speculating here, but it is... It is quite possible that these Bigfoot creatures, the reason why we don't find their remains or, or any sign of them is because they don't live here. Well, uh, Or they may not be in our dimension. They may not be in the world as we see it. There's a story that I'm trying to follow up that was on Coast to Coast. A caller said that he was from wor- an American working in Russia, in particular working in the natural history part of uh, a university in St. Petersburg. I have a friend that I work with that, um, having her try and check out some of this information for me, they supposedly have a remains of a Bigfoot that was taxidermied in the basement uh, of this thing from the early Russian expeditions into the California area. In particular, I'm trying to remember the exact name of it. I have it all written down at home, but I can forward that information to you, Stan. That sounds interesting. And, you know, again, as I keep stressing, we may indeed be dealing, just like with UFOs, there may be more than one type of Bigfoot creature. Maybe some of these things are zoological. But the question still remains is, why don't we have other tangible evidence from anywhere around the world? And, you know, occasionally I've heard these stories as well. We followed up on where somebody allegedly shot one or even reports where the government allegedly came in and confiscated a body of a Bigfoot. We've heard those alleged accounts. But when you try to follow these, up, these stories up, generally... They're second-hand, and nobody can come down to the source where these things originated from. But who knows, in this case, maybe there'll be something. Or Bigfoot's retrieving their own dead. That's another occasion I've heard that one was killed and a a couple others came bounding out of the woods, dragging the body off. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's it's incredible. I mean, until you really think about it, I mean, people say, how is it possible in this day and age that there could be uh, such a large creature that could exist that we can't run into and come in contact with. But there yeah. is so much unsettled uh, territory around the world that it, they could easily thrive. Well, in Pennsylvania alone, I mean, just along the Chestnut Ridge area, there's, there's so many woods and forests here in Pennsylvania, in that mountainous area, and I've been all through there. It's pretty well snake-infested, a lot of it. And uh, you could easily have a family of these things living up through those areas. There's no doubt about it. I mean, their their communities, I would assume, would have to be small. I mean, not they're by no means, you know, like a, a herd of them living together. But they they probably do have, you know, small thriving communities in little pockets throughout the world. Well, we've had reports of more than one large creature together. We've had reports of larger ones and smaller ones together. But most of the time, they're, they're observations of a, of a single creature. And uh, once again. You know, so many of the reports we have are not a shadow of something a quarter of a mile away running through the woods in the evening. Many of these, and when you read the stories in the book I'm working on, so many of these are detailed accounts where people were actually 
five to ten feet away. And during this wave of sightings in 73, there were a number of instances, strange as it sounds, where they were looking into people's windows eight to nine feet off the ground. Wow. And, I mean, just remarkable. The, the first, how this all began, I got a call on August 7th of 1973 from a, a witness, from actually a relative of a witness, who told me one of the relatives in the family had just got out of the hospital, which may have been indirectly as a response to the events that happened on July 31st outside of Greensburg in this rural area. So that day, on August 7th, I made arrangements to go out and talk to that witness. And he told me it was a hot summer of 73. He had the window open that night. He was shaving because he went to work early the next morning. He had the window open in his bathroom, and he began to smell this really strange odor, rotten odor. He said, like rotten cucumber. There were dogs outside. The dogs weren't responding. And he said, I turned around to get something off the windowsill, and there in the center of the window are these two two huge glowing red eyes. Well, the window's eight feet off the ground. They slammed the window and ran out in the other room and yelled to the other people in the house. They smelled the odor, came in, and, of course, there's nothing there. But the dogs wouldn't respond. The next day, the guy had a heart condition, was taken by ambulance, and he was away for a while. So when I went out to there, I interviewed the family and found out as I'm talking to them that several boys, several weeks before, were taking a walk over to the mall from there. They heard a commotion in the woods. There was a lot of woods and uh, branches around there and trees, and they thought it was a deer. So they began to throw some rocks in to scare the deer out. Instead of a deer, comes this huge, hairy, man-like creature, about seven, eight foot tall, with real long arms, taking big strides across the road. So it went up behind the house, up behind the hill. So I said, if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to go look your property up behind your hill. So several of the kids followed me up, and we started walking around, searching around, and just as we're about to leave, I look down and I see a, a partial track and a very detailed impression in the ground. Three-toed footprint, which I believe is on my website. as a picture of it. It's 13 inches long, 8 inches wide. We made a very detailed casting of it. You can see muscle tone, bone structure in it. Very similar three-toed tracks kept showing up all across the widespread area and for years later. And similar tracks have shown up around the country. But... That's while we're out in the field, we get a radio report to one of our investigators up in Beaver County outside of Pittsburgh that same morning was following up on a report where a creature had looked into a window of, of a trailer very high off the ground. They had found 18-inch footprints up there that had glowing red eyes, and that was the beginning of this wave of reports that went on for weeks and weeks. And let me tell you, I, I took some time off of work because I was in a position and I had some vacation time coming. I spent weeks just working on these cases around the clock. We had our teams responding 24 hours a day to these cases. It was an unbelievable series of events. And to get out there right after these things were around, and I, and I have no doubt in some cases we were very close behind where these, I never saw a Bigfoot, but we were, with the animal reactions we saw, with some of the sounds recorded, we felt in some cases we were very close to these things. We never saw one. And do you know when the book will come out? Is it still? Well, I'm still working on a manuscript, but I'm getting a lot close, so I hope they have it ready, hopefully early next year, to go to the publisher. Okay, and when it does finally come out, we'll have to have you come back on and talk about it with us some more. That'll be great. We appreciate it. All right, we thank you for, for joining us tonight. That's Stan Gordon. Now, if, 
if you'd like to contact him with uh, any, because we have listeners all over the place, Dan, and especially uh, in Pennsylvania. And if there's anybody listening that would like to report anything to Stan, just go to his website, stangordon.com. Uh, do you have an email address you'd like to give out, Stan? Or? Yeah, it's, you can get it through there. It's uh, P-A-U-F-O at Westall, W-A-E-S-T-O-L dot com. Or they can go to the website and just click on the email address. There you go. So check out his site, StanGordon.com. Order the Kecksburg DVD and stay tuned for more information about the forthcoming Bigfoot book. We thank you for joining us, Stan, and you're welcome back uh, anytime, and uh, we hope you enjoyed your time here with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good evening. You too. Hey, Stan. Yes, sir. I would definitely like to come down there and do some more work with you on uh, Kecksburg. Take some samples. Sound good to you? Uh, That'd be great. But once again... uh this is all on private property, so I do not have access to the area, and uh, that's something you'll have to just work with. He's a smooth talker. I'll he'll, get he'll, access. He'll get don't access. Worry. All right. Have a good evening. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. So that is Stan Gordon, and and like I said, go to stangordon.com and you can find out more information about this very intriguing case. And while we are talking about individual cases and and focusing on single events and single stories and histories. Next week, we're going to have a really, really interesting program for you as well. Uh, next week, we're going to focus on the red-headed hitchhiker of Route 44. You've heard the stories. You've read the tales on websites such as the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, masscrossroads.com, if you want to check it out. Uh, we are going to have in the studio with us Christopher Palzano, the administrator of that site. Uh, he is going to be in here in the quote-unquote home base while we have Matt Moniz, our science advisor, will be out in the car along with John Horrigan from the Mass Monster Mash uh, conference and a, uh, an investigator into the paranormal in his own right, uh, and as well as there might be a reporter with you as well. Right. And you're going to be out there actually going up and down Route 44 trying to find the red-headed hitchhiker, trying to offer him a ride and see if you can verify some of these reports uh, that we've heard over the years. And at the same time, we'll have Chris Balzano in here in the studio with us talking about some of these reports that have been heard, some of these myths, and some of these claims about the red-headed hitchhiker as well. Yeah, all the folklore that surrounds them, and it's just a chance to do an actual investigation. And who knows, maybe you'll pick him up in the car, hand him the phone, and we'll interview him here on Spooky South Coast. Huh? Maybe. Anything, we're lucky. <laughs> as we say, anything is possible. And don't forget also, mark your calendar, November 21st, the Freetown Historical Society will be putting on an event where we will talk about the Freetown State Forest as well as the Bridgewater Triangle. It'll be us as well as Christopher Balzano and Christopher Pittman, who is the foremost triangle historian on the web. So that is just some upcoming program notes. Stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com where we will have all the information and you can download the show in case you missed any portion of it. And find out about future guests as well. So, for the silent assassin, Matt Costa, for science advisor, Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy. And what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.
physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. And now, when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry.